So, so yeah, I mean, leaving was very emotional. I mean, I'm leaving my home of, goodness, I've lived in that apartment and owned it for 16 years. It's a lot of memories. Um, You're listening to The Prime Pod. I'm your host, Robert McLean. This is a special edition of the podcast because rather than talking about Central Europe's real estate sector, I'm talking about Kyiv, a city whose future lies in the balance. More to the point, I'm talking about it with Nick Cotton, one of the hundreds of thousands who fled the city because of war. Nick Cotton is head of Cushman and Wakefield's affiliate office in Ukraine. He's lived in Kyiv since the beginning of the century. Even the night before the invasion, Nick had posted on Facebook that he and his wife would be staying. But the situation deteriorated rapidly during the following day as Russians made swift progress on multiple fronts. He realized his only sensible option was to join the exodus of civilians from the capital and from the country. I made contact with him a couple days after he and his wife settled into an apartment in Budapest. But he asked me for more time before telling his story. His nerves were still a bit shot, but he was also busy trying to collect information about and to help his staff. We eventually connected by teams. We spoke for a while about the path that brought him from the UK to Moscow and later to Kyiv. I asked Nick why he stayed in Kyiv even after the Maidan uprising in 2014, when open hostilities with Russia really came to the fore. Hadn't he had doubts about Ukraine's future? The happenings of the last three weeks will come to in a minute. Um, Okay. Why did I stay I think because ultimately, you know, for me, it's been a privilege to be in Ukraine and, you know, to play a very small part in its development. I was co-chair of the, of the American Chamber of Commerce Real Estate Committee for five years. I was on the board of the European Business Association for three years. I'm still on the board of the British Ukrainian Chamber of Commerce. You know, and, you know, and, and even just through the activities of Kushner Wakefield, you know, applying professional standards to valuations, professional approaches towards occupier representation this is all about you know instilling you know some sort of western values and that's happening and you can see that improvement coming through the whole of society from you know a myriad of different you know western and domestic companies in ukraine that have really sort of risen to the bar of of of, of engaging western standards of accountability and reporting etc cetera, etc cetera. so so you so you bought into the story and you became part of the yes, story, essentially. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think actually in in 2014 with the, the, the loss of Crimea, you know, I mean, the removal of the Yanukovych regime was, for me, a, you know, a fantastic signal to the world that somebody could not just... I mean, he was democratically elected, I don't question that. But then there was significant abuse of power significant abuse of power and basically therefore selling out the country and for, for, for so many people to uprise peacefully and it was a very peaceful uprising we were involved in the let's say in the crisis supervision of a shopping center actually under Maidan actually under the owned by let's say a British investment fund under um, the main independent square and despite the three months plus of um, occupation of the square by the Maidan revolution or uprising, there was absolutely no vandalism, no looting, no theft. 
and they were in control of the shopping mall basically for three months. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was nothing. I mean, obviously, it, you know, there was onto the surface there was fire damage and bullet holes, but the the jewelry shops, the fashion shops were closed, were locked. They were not looted. It, you know, it was, and it was a testament to those that were demonstrating. They were demonstrating for a better Ukraine. So, I mean, why did I stay? Because goodness me, after after you've seen that, yeah, and you've gone through that. And you've seen that a country just pull together. You know, I mean, Ukraine's a difficult place to live. But when you see people pull together in that way, then it actually strengthens your resolve to remain committed despite some pretty tough times. And it's given me a good life. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've been privileged to live there financially, socially. So, you know, it's never. I've never really thought, you know, I've had enough, now's the time to leave. Um, I've got... Now, you know, as of three weeks ago, we've got 32 committed, dedicated staff, you know, who look to me to show them, you know, leadership and commitment. And, you know, the last thing you want to do, you know, is say, well, guess what, guys, I'm more or less had enough. So the whole 2014, 2015 Maidan thing, that was inspiring for you rather than discouraging. Absolutely. So tell me when you began to have serious misgivings about what was happening? When would you say that you really started to become worried? I, I, worried. You know, we, we've every year we've had um, the Russian-Belarusian joint exercises, and every year there's always been some speculation. Oh, you know, are they going to invade? What are they doing? Um, this year was clearly a much stronger message was being sent out, particularly from the, the US and the UK uh, about their concerns about the exercises this year because they were the biggest. And I think also because of Putin's language about Ukraine, not that it doesn't effectively exist as a as, as a state. Um, so that was a concern. But you know, when I obviously we discussed it openly in the office, and a majority of people were saying, "Yeah, you know, listen, we go through this every year. This year is a bit more heated. Why? You know, what what's his upside in invading? You know, what, why would he do anything? You know, we Ukraine is it's a small democratic liberal country, so there was there was not a lot of heat. I think." <laughs> I think where, which is exactly the problem, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think it is quite telling. I, th- I think it's. I think. I think where I can sort of draw draw the point where things were obviously becoming a concern on the twenty fifth of January, and I think that was maybe a couple of days after, and I think the UK was the first country to say we we recommend not to travel to Ukraine. I was looking at that thinking, come on. <laughs> Like what? You know, I live here, so it's not a question. But that was that didn't cause great concern. The UK then gave change advice: leave Ukraine. And the reason why I remember, I think the twenty fifth of January, I took my dogs to get a teeter test for rabies. That takes a month or so. So I think the fact that I did something that was the first thing I did. Okay, that was my first action about making any form of preparation um, to leave Ukraine. So got in, so that was 25th of January. And then over the course of the next couple of weeks, you know, yeah, you know, we started setting up some sort of processes, procedures in the office. You know, we set up a second data backup room. You know, we were getting all emergency numbers for staff, second contacts for staff families. You know, But all that- this was, but, but out of an abundance of caution or or was it more like, you were tr- you were now treating this as a real as as, no. a, as a real possibility. I think this was an abundance accord. I mean, I think after as I've been in Ukraine for over twenty three years, 
you know, you always plan for the worst and hope for the best. Always. If you don't do that, you're history. Right. You, you've got to make provision. You must do. Whether it's financial, structural, whatever, you've got to do it. Because, you know, you just get wide balls at every opportunity. You know, there's, there's always something to surprise you in Ukraine. So I think that was just me being abundantly cautious. And some people think, yeah, it's just Nick being Nick. Um, but thankfully we did. You know, it's made some, some difference, not a huge amount, to be honest. But really right up, and actually it's funny, but actually on, on the Wednesday, the I'll have to check my dates, I think Wednesday the 23rd of March, but it was the Wednesday, I'd actually written on Facebook, because lots of people were writing on Facebook saying, what are you doing, Nick, what's happening? And I'd actually written quite openly on Wednesday, guys, I'm not writing to you all individually, here I am, um, and here we stay, you know, as long as we can, because this is our home, this is our country, this is our, our livelihood, so... Fingers crossed, pray for the best, um, we're staying. Uh, and then, of course, literally within 12 hours of that email or that Facebook posting going out, you know, the war started on Thursday. So Thursday in Kiev, even on the Thursday, my wife and I were saying, well, do we, you know, really our place is here. This is our home. We've got a nice, you know, nice, nice apartment in the center of Kiev. Um, surely, surely, you know, Kiev wouldn't be bombed. Um, but actually then we, <clears throat> you know, we started hearing the air raid sirens and, you know, the dull thud of explosions on the outskirts of Kiev. So we did a lot of thinking and, and it was really Thursday evening that, you know, a few more calls from from some from some people that whose, let's say, whose advice I value were basically saying, get out. You can always come back. And I think what was holding me back was, you know, I didn't want to, to be honest, I didn't want to let the staff down. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, if I run, you know, the captain abandoned ship first, that's a pretty poor reflection on, on me, on, on Cushman and Wakefield. So I think that's what was really sort of holding me back. But then, you know, Thursday evening, we were sat there, electricity went off a few times a night, which has never happened in our apartment in <laughs> the 20 years I've been there. So I thought, well, hang on. You know, clearly they're, they're targeting the electrical infrastructure. And, and then, you know, I, I decided that the best thing was that, that I, should, I should evacuate. So we packed what we could into the back of a car. I mean, we'd bought gasoline, so that's another ultra precaution. People thought I was crazy. I bought, I think, 60 litres of gasoline that was stuck in the back of my car in jerry cans, and the car was always full and fully serviced, you know. And people would say, well, why? And I said, well, you never know. <laughs> so that had been done two or three weeks before. Yeah. So, um, so there, there were there were some steps taken, and then Friday morning again woke to the sound of air raid sirens. News that you know there'd been an attack on Gotham Airport, you know, to the north and to the east and to the south as well. So, we really decided then, yeah, this is this is not going to finish overnight. So we got in the car and drove out, and that was a. I mean, it was. So that was that was Friday morning. That and, was Friday morning. Yeah, I mean, it was quite. And a, did you were you actually hearing? Were you? I mean, were there jets screaming overhead? Were you hearing yeah, bombs? Were, yeah. we Describe the scene a bit. Okay, I mean, there were jet. I mean, there were, there were certain air raid sirens. So I was packing the car, you know, under air raid sirens. You know, I mean, some people were running for cover, but you know, I took the view. Well, Kiev hasn't been hit yet. In, in the centre, so you know, I just kept packing the car and walking around the street, you know, sorting stuff out. You go into the office to sort of get documents and certificates and things like this, and coming back from the office, you know, I didn't use the elevator <laughs> because of the I thought that would be a sensible route, so we walked the stairs, you know. So I wouldn't say there was a huge sense of panic. You know, Friday morning, I was I went to the office to get documents, 
yeah okay. to bring out you know you know registration documents etc so and then we and then we set off maybe nine o'clock friday morning can you describe your last meeting with your staff and how and like how how were you able to tell them that and well I, unfortunately it? and 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 to my i think it's gonna be my permanent regrets i wasn't able to do that because wednesday was a normal working day Right. Thursday, you know, we woke up to air raid sirens and shelling. And so unfortunately, right. I've not had the opportunity to sit with the staff and say, this is it, I'm off. But such is such as the events of war, you know, you don't you don't necessarily get that leisure. So what you're saying is the rest of us, like further west, we're not completely naive. We weren't singularly naive not to see this coming even even up to the last almost. I think I, th- I think particularly the US and the UK were absolutely dead on. They were saying a large-scale invasion for a good six or eight weeks before it came. So you left, it was, I'm sorry, was it Thursday or Friday? Friday in the morning. morning. Yeah. Okay, so tell me what you, you know, tell me about the trip and what you saw well, it, and how you felt. Um, I mean, it was very, very emotional. Um, yeah, sorry, but yeah. Give me a minute. Take your time. So, so yeah, I mean, leaving was very emotional. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving my home of. Goodness, I've lived in that apartment and owned it for 16 years. It's a lot of memories. Um, going out, I mean, certainly on, on the Thursday, there were there were huge queues going out of Kiev. Um, and there were reports of people taking two days to get to the border. So Friday morning seemed a bit quieter, so I thought I'd miss the rush. So I shot out of Kiev. There were you know, we, we literally left under air raid sirens. You could hear the dull thud of munitions. I didn't feel personally threatened. I didn't feel that, you know, I was going to be shelled my, myself. So, you know, I, I, I can't pretend that. Um, quite humbling, you know, we were stuck in traffic. We then fairly immediately got stuck in heavy, heavy traffic all the way out of Kiev. And, you know, there's, there's a logistics centre that, that, that has recently actually just been shelled, Eastgate Logistics. That would normally take me 35 minutes to get there. I think it took me from nine four and a half hours and that that that's telling because that is the let's say the the border point from from kiev city it took me four and a half hours to get there just through the the volume of traffic you were heading west i was going west which was a bit of a risk because you could hear to the west to further west shelling so but my main point was to get you know going west as fast as we could clearly we got snarled up but it took us as i say Three and a half, four hours to what should have taken 35, 40 minutes. And then once you sort of get beyond there, then then it's sort of a free run. But the you know, it's quite humbling because as we're sat in the queue going out, there's a lot of um armored personnel carriers with young troops coming into the center. And you think, goodness me, you know, here we all are running and here are young men and women on the way in. Many many of them just volunteers, you know. Right. So um really quite emotional to do that. And then the, I mean, the journey was, I can't say it's terrible because now everything's relative to those that are left behind. 
Um, but it was a long journey. We, you know, we, we didn't. We were hoping to get to Lviv the first night, Friday night. We never made it. So we slept in the car overnight on the outskirts of a town called Rivna. Got up early Saturday morning. We drove again. And again, we hit very heavy traffic. But because as you go into Western Ukraine, at each oblast, there are military checkpoints. So they're, they're checking for, for infiltrators, basically. So huge tailbacks. And I think we... We hit the queue at the border, you know, let's say the queue, <laughs> where you couldn't overtake, at the border at about 2 o'clock Sunday morning. So we'd been on the road since 9 o'clock, half past 8, 9 o'clock Friday morning, and we actually got to the end of the queue Sunday morning, 2 o'clock. Which was how many kilometres from the border? About five. Uh, and then it took us... From two o'clock Sunday morning, I think we got over at about eleven o'clock Tuesday morning, Oof. and then it, and that that was it. It was just a long queue. Um, you know, incredible humanitarian relief from the Ukraine side, and well, from both sides. I mean, we went over the Slovak border, um, but continually um, the local population were bringing soup, water, sandwiches, nuts, crisps, toys for kids. Offering to take the dogs for, a, you know, food. You know, everybody. You know, everybody was there. But it was really, you know, there was more, more assistance than, than you could cope with. And every, it was all coffee. And teams. that's from the, the, and that's on the Ukrainian side. On the Ukrainian side, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was it. So we we eventually got through. Um, we 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 had a contact who managed to secure us a, a, a hotel room about. 45 minutes into Slovakia. So we just went there and just slept because we hadn't really slept for four and a half days. Slept there a night and then set off and came to Budapest. And then here we are. Just just one logistical question. Can that trip to the border be done on a single tank of gas no. or did you have to use the gas that you had stored? No, we, we kept the gas, again, maybe selfishly, we kept the gas stored um, because, because we were in a convoy and we just didn't know how long the queue would be. I mean, we used you know, a third half a tank of petrol in the queue. Um, so at least we would have it. Nobody ran out. But what they were doing logistically out of Kiev, all petrol stations had supplies. Um, there were big queues. And further you went, less the queues were. Uh, and we knew that from other people that had gone out before us. So we, you know, knowing that we had the reserves, we sort of pushed We pushed the tank down to sort of quarter. Um to get to where we knew there was there was a freer supply and, and smaller queues. Uh, what the Ukrainians were doing, though, they were limiting 20 litres per car per fill. So so that's been, so we've been in Budapest now two and a half weeks. Again, it's, it's where, you know, where do you focus your, your energies? Um, my sort of responsibilities have been and, and still are very much to my staff. You know, they, they have been for the last 23 years. So, you know, at the moment, about a third of my staff are, are over the border um, and scattered from Italy, Switzerland, Netherlands, Belgium, Poland, Romania. You know, they're, they're all over you know, Europe and, and even now Scandinavia. So what we've been doing, about a third, a third of them are over the border. They are predominantly female staff with their families because their husbands have been precluded from leaving. So the husbands are often stuck back in Ukraine. We've also got, let's say, the estranged families of male staff. So, you know, you know the male staff are there, but their, their families are, 
are over the border. We've got about a third of the staff are in Western Ukraine in relative safety, um, of Lviv, Chernivtsi, Ivano-Frankivsk. Most of them are there with their families. So they've, they've moved out of Kiev with their families. Uh, but still, we've got about a third of the staff are still in Kiev, which is you know a big concern. Uh, we got one guy who was stuck. The, the Russian lines came beyond his village. Um, he's, he was to the east of Kiev. Um, we lost contact with him for a few days. Um, but anyway, he's now managed to somehow get out of his village. And he's now managed to make his way to Kiev. Are you... As surprised by the rest as the rest of us by just the incredible bravery of the Ukrainians, or was that obvious to you from the beginning? You know, Ukraine is a is a is a is a, is a liberal democracy. You know, I mean, the the Tatars from Crimea. You know, many of them have come back to Ukraine and actually been given special privileges um, because they're displaced from Crimea. You know, um, but they're, but they're Tatars. You know, um, there's a huge Jewish community in Ukraine. There's a, there's there's a Muslim community in Ukraine, and you've got the the Orthodox Ukrainian Church, the Orthodox Russian Church. Um, you've got the, the the Greek Catholic Church. You know, and therefore Ukraine's often been seen as being a bit fragmented. You know, what are people? You know, does it have an identity? You know, I mean, Poland is Poland. Ukraine is well, it's Western Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine. Um, but I think ultimately, at the end of the day, irrespective of where people's um, you know, backgrounds lie, you know, they are all vast majority, vast vast majority are Ukrainians and believe in the Ukrainian identity as being, you know, a former Soviet country which has a democratic um, government, and you know, the fact that they voted in a comedian with seventy three percent of the vote demonstrates that. You know, you know, me, me, my wife is ethnically, you know, her name is Russian. You know, her family are in live in Kiev from Kiev, Russian speakers, but they're passionately Ukrainian. You know, because this, these are the values that for the last thirty years they've they've aspired to, you know, to, to live to. So, I think certainly seeing the let's say the, the orange revolution that I was around in two thousand and four, the, the the Maidan uprising or the revolution of dignity, it's sometimes called in two thousand and fourteen. I knew that Ukrainians would resist. Seeing the the call to arms, I didn't expect quite that resolve. And I think now it's become almost a snowball effect. You know, the, the more severe and more indiscriminate the bombing has become, um, more and more people are saying, you know, this, this isn't acceptable. And actually, you know, we're seeing an increased commitment and resolve of the people to, to stand up and defend their homeland.